Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Silmarillion Film Project. This is session number 30 of season six. And tonight we are going to be discussing episode 12, the penultimate episode of the season. Um, You know, no spoilers, but it doesn't end on a happy note. I know by this point in the Silmarillion Film Project, you will be shocked and appalled to hear that there are things that happen that are not necessarily cheerful, but uh, we are coming towards the end uh, of uh, the, the events of the season leading up towards the climax. And, um, very exciting. So I'm delighted to be joined this evening uh, by Nick and Marie, as usual, from our writer's room and our special guest, Alana Mushin from Brisbane, Australia, who is uh, was the author of our script for this time. So, Ilana, so glad you could join us. Oh, it's great to be here. I was just trying to imagine, of course, Alana was my host down at Osmoot in January, and I, I was just trying to imagine Australia in wintertime, which, given that I was down there in January, was hard for me to imagine because it was not wintertime when I was down there. But um, anyway. Uh, it's it'll be quite different from your wintertime, I'll tell you. <laughs> right. right. Uh, the, the, I... light, the lighting will be similar. Like they right. get darker and light late, but um, yeah, it's uh, not so freezing. Although because we don't have the same kind of insulation and, and double glazing and all of that that you have, um, right. it actually is like we, we rug up a lot inside because right. uh, it's like colder inside than outside. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that which is, of course, also the thing that makes an air-conditioned summer up where I live intolerable because you're in buildings which were designed to hold in the heat, you know, in the wintertime. Yeah. And so we're designed to let it, let it flow out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which is less optimal when it gets cold. All right. Anyway, so uh, quick uh, announcements. We've got um, the biggest announcement, of course, Myth Moot is coming up very soon on June 22nd. We are now just a couple weeks away uh, from Myth Moot down in Leesburg, Virginia. I'm very excited to see everyone again for Myth Moot 10 this year. Um, we have finished our regional moot uh, uh, slate for the spring, uh, pre-myth moot. Looking forward to fall moots to come, um, our first of which will be uh, one of our newest moots, Cascade Moot in Portland, Oregon. Um, we have Middle Moot coming up, New England Moot coming up, also several others which have just recently been confirmed, including a new one in uh, uh, in. New Orleans, which uh, I think we're going to call Bayou Moot, uh, and that's going to be on the 2nd of December. And then, of course, Ilana, we are excited about the prospect of Osmoot again next January in Sydney this time, right? As we are kind of kind of rotate yeah. around the, the continent down there, um, <laughs> uh, meeting new friends. So I uh, really um, that'll be uh, that'll be delightful. And that's yeah, going to be the, the, the dates of that are going to be that it's the last weekend in January again, right? Yeah. 26th to the 28th. So, yeah, yeah, we're just yeah. just doing the final touches on venue booking and so on and then. We'll yeah, spectacular. Uh, so looking forward to that. I'm already uh, uh, looking into travel arrangements and stuff for that. So I'm uh, I'm I'm excited for um, getting back down there again. So yes, lots of uh, a fun new moots coming up again here uh, in the in the coming season. But again. The next and biggest is uh, Myth Moot uh, in Virginia. So hope folks can uh, join us there. All right. So let us jump into where our focus in on Doriath here. So you have um, 
you've highlighted some things. We've got the crossings that you're primarily highlighting here, Mary, in this map. Right. So this is not um, strictly a bottle episode the way some of our like intentionally deliberately bottle episodes are. And yet we don't really travel anywhere in this episode outside of Doria. So the only traveling is there's a little bit of activity in Dimbar. And I just highlighted some river crossings so we could see where people could cross to travel between Brethel and Doriath and and how that might look. I thought that would be helpful. So basically, if you're going from Minagroth to Mm -hmm. Brethel, to Amonobo, Mm -hmm. you would have to go either south of the Esgaldiuin and all the way around you know, the ravines of, Ta- of, of, of Tiglin up around that way, or mm-hmm. go up through Neldoreth, cut through Dimbar, and come down across the Brithiachin down that way, right? Correct. Those are the two options. Which is and, the option and they take, right? They, yeah. they take the northerly option in the story, yes. Which, which turns out ill under the circumstances, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, the longer route, the the longer way around in the comparatively wolf-free zone might have been better, but how are they to know? So, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah. So, but pretty much the majority, we've got the River Mindeb, which is an important to remember that features in this episode. That's where um, Karkaroth is first sighted, right? Correct. Yeah. Now, um, the one thing, and I've always been curious about the fact that this never appears on the map itself. That is where exactly the boundaries of the girdle are. Right. That right? would be a helpful thing to know. It really would. He mentions it like a little bit, but he doesn't exactly go around and, and say precisely where the, where the boundaries are. Um, but we're basically treating it as sort of in the forest of Neldoreth, essentially, right? Or at least like at the boundaries. Yes. Or within, but, but it's probably not right at the what boundaries I was imagining. necessarily. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, 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 that was what I imagined. Right. Dimbar, the way they talk about Dimbar, you know, as sort of the, the frontier, right? Um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, of course, especially, you know, Beleg and Turin, you know, in Turin's early days and stuff. Um, uh you, you you get the pretty clear impression that Dimbar is not inside the girdle, but um, and I re- no see I, I I'm sorry I was just gonna I was gonna say I remember this other passage but no I, I remember Thingol's there's that reference to how Thingol wanted to make sure that like part of his realm includes you know um, uh, the Syrian and you know like that there's this like other part that's but that's. Kind of, that's Nivrim, which is right. the the lower part below the bridge. Right. So below the bridge, there's an oak forest on the other side of the Syrian River, and that's the part where Syrian is part of Doria. Right. So just below the, the letter D on the map, right? This this, this bit here, yeah, yeah. That's Nivrim, and possibly above the letter D as well. Again, I don't right. actually know yeah. the boundaries of Nivrim. Um, <laughs> presumably, if you were there, you would see where the oak trees end, and that's right. the boundary. But the idea is therefore that north of the bridge probably only the east bank of the syrian would be part of doriath but 
does the girdle go right along the edge of the river? Is it right. some depth into the forest? Just because Thingol considers Nivrim part of Doriath and therefore... Is that inside or outside the girdle? Right. And we know the borders of Nivrim aren't within the girdle because that's where Luthien is when Huon first finds her. So she's clearly outside the protections of Doriath at that point. Right. Right. But, yeah. But where does that line happen yeah. is the other right. question right like, and w- the borders of doriath versus the location of the girdle are they synonymous probably not yeah well in my um my estimate is that my estimate is that the uh the forest there is probably about i want to say 20 20 miles wide at its widest point there um which would suggest to me that the girdle could extend into the forest mm-hmm. a fair amount um, while still leaving some of it accessible to the outside. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Possibly. That would put the encounter, the, that first encounter with Huon, mm. like just across the girdle, right. basically. Right. Like, you know, you've taken three steps across the girdle and, oh, look, it's Kelgorman Corfin. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. That's a little. I mean, oh, I can not, tell I'm outside the girdle because you're here, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly, right? They're Fanorians. That's oh, a dead giveaway. Fancy um, meeting you here. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. No. It's it's it is. I've never. I haven't reflected on this very much, but it is a little bit odd to me that there's no indicator that there's never any indicator. I mean, I don't remember ever seeing a Silmarillion map which had any indication mm-hmm. of where the girdle is. And um I think the uh, one in the atlas might have it. Yeah. Yeah. It, maybe, but maybe. I've, I've based I've, on what the, the atlas for I, a while. Yeah, I know yeah. exactly. It's yeah. But I I feel like the the ambiguity of it seems intentional. Mhm. Um it's like um, you don't know where the where the boundary between our world and the other world is in the middle right. of the river, right? Until you cross it, you don't right. know. Well, I mean, where in the wardrobe, that. whether you're in it, whether <laughs> you're in Narnia or England, in the wardrobe right. until you know, right? Yeah. I mean, the girdle of Melian is one of the most explicit kind of border of fairy elements in Tolkien stories. So yes, I mean that does on the on the one hand. I totally get that. On the other hand, I always feel reading the stories. I always feel like they're assuming I know where you know where the there's there's several places in the stories where well because they, like, they know yeah they know exactly the writers I mean, not, knew exactly where it was. It's not a mystery to anybody in the story but me, right? So yeah, I mean at least that's certainly what I um uh, what I always it's feel it's about, like but. um. There will be places in the Bible where the the text says, you know, by this place that right. you should obviously know about. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The the uh, I think the 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 pool where uh, the healing pool where the angel would come through and stir the water. Trouble the waters. Yeah. yeah. But that story eventually got lost to time and somebody had to come in and explain like oh by the way this is what they're why they're doing this right the pool of siloam yeah yeah yes yeah 
Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's uh, it has that kind of impression. And again, and perhaps you know that's another um, another one of those kind of textual artifacts, right? That like, of course, the people telling these stories would n- and wouldn't necessarily be like. And by the way, you should know, you know, for like uh, posterity, that this is exactly where. It's just that. There's so many other places, like in of Balerian and its realms, where he does explain exactly where the even again the passage that I'm remembering, which in my mind I had kind of associated that with like, well, this is where the girdle goes, right? I mean, if somebody had asked me, I would have been like, well, yeah, there's that passage, but then I'm thinking, no, wait, actually, he doesn't say that. He's talking about the political jurisdiction of of Thingol, which we know to be not exactly, you know, coterminous with the girdle. Um anyway. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. I was assuming so, that when I had, when Thingol's making sure everybody's in the girdle and Karkaros around, that yes. not everybody was it within the girdle up until that point. Yeah. I mean, um, he started the ball rolling after the Dagor Bragalach, but now, you know, this is a bit more imminent, you know. <laughs> right. There's a difference between, you know, maybe you want to think about living within flight distance of the girdle of Melian and like, you know, between that and, you know, it's, it's, it's the difference between making sure you're not far from a tornado shelter and like huddling in the tornado shelter. Right. Which is clearly, um, the, you know, the, the call that, that Thingol's making there. Um, okay. Anyway, we can talk more about that, but I just want to, it, it was interesting to me. One of the things that I was reflecting on, though, was that this there's only been a handful of times when this question, like where exactly does the girdle lie, has been has come up. You know, I mean, we've 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 not been kind of up against that um, uh, a few times, like when um, the Haladin were coming across. Right. We had to kind of think about that then, you know, and them being at the boundaries of the girdle. But but again, there, there just have not been a, 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 a large number of instances where it has made crucial sort of story I th- difference. I think more in season five than any other mm-hmm. season, if because that's when um, with the humans roaming around. And right. Stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, it, the, the Estelad people out on the out on the plains, there, kind yeah. of bumping up against the edges of Doriath and whatnot on yeah. occasion. Yeah. But see, but even there, it was still mostly like, you know, roughly the forest. Basically, it's the forest, yeah. you know, um, and trying to specify further than that was not something. Oh, it's on the really... Brethel side that it's way less clear. Yeah, because it's all, sure. it's all forest. Is it right at the river? Is it in the middle of the river? Is it, yeah, across the river? Yes, exactly. Okay, anyway, all right. So today's episode, Ilana, uh, um, t- tell me about the the title. Um, well, Marie helped a lot with the title. <laughs> And uh, we were just just trying to so so it was the uh, achievement of the quest was right. the the uh, the title and uh, that's the last line spoken in the episode yes. uh, and uh, so this was a cinder in rendering of that very frustratingly as far as I can tell Tolkien never came up with an elven word in any of his elvish languages. For quest, yes, yes. Like so, I, it feels like a very clear. It's absence. because it's because the El, because quest is the elvish word. 
Well, or the opposite of that. It's because Quest is have French. French. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's the which thing. is the I opposite like, of Elvish. <laughs> right. So I was like, okay, okay. Well, what's a synonym for Quest that I could use to right find? Oh yeah, but like ad- it was adventure tough. is too adventures of a French word. Aventure. So yeah, I think yeah. what, what yeah. we ended up with was essentially task. Task. Yeah. Yeah. So the job's done. Is yeah. not that's, quite the same language as the the quest is achieved. That's I, so German, and therefore yeah. Anglo-Saxon. What the job's done? No yeah. task. Oh, task. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it's um. Yeah. No. That is a that is a really interesting thing. Well, I mean, it's I. So I'm flashing back to Verlin Flieger lecture on this, where she was talking about like the word quest and the word adventure and the the, the Tolkien's choice of those words and using those words as he does adventure primarily in the hobbit of course it's, it's it's about the adventure and then the shift to the word quest in uh in the lord of the rings which is a in some ways a sort of a striking choice for exa- i mean i seem to remember her talking about the absence of quest words mm-hmm. uh in the elvish language um of the elvish well, language. Is english so i mean maybe old english might have something more comparable but like Modern English has no words for this that aren't French. <laughs> well, it's, bec- I mean, I... expedition, adventure, voyage, like it's all <laughs> coming from the French. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all, you know, like Latinate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, those right. the- so it's possible that has something to do with the issue here is that if the old English people didn't need a word for it, then the elves didn't either. But yeah, um, I found it well, frustrating. It is, but I didn't. I didn't mind uh, it being. I mean, quest is a set. You know, it has has a particular in in modern English has a particular right. um, meaning um, associated with like seeking something or achieve. You know, that sort of thing. Whereas this did feel like it was a task accomplished rather than a quest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because the quest was was achieved by getting the silver reel out of Angband, in a sense. Right. Right. Uh, sorry. No, and sorry. I, I, I love the, I love the the irony of the title. Right. I mean, um, the quest. There, there's a the, there's a kind of delightful fake out in the title of this episode without actually being dishonest. Right. I mean, it's the quest achieved by itself sounds like a you know if, when seen in, in an episode list it sounds cheerful <laughs> right it doesn't sound like the episode where the protagonist dies at the end <laughs> right it, so, ex- yeah. except when i hear the words just the quest all i hear is galadriel's voice saying the quest will claim his life right. <laughs> and anyone who's familiar with that right uh with that trailer line We'll have immediate ominous feelings about it. <laughs> right. Can hear that. Well, um, and, and the fact that this is episode 12 of the 13 episodes. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I- exactly. The fact that the second last episode is the quest accomplished and yet it's not the end of the season should perhaps, if you're not on your guard, set you on your guard just a little bit. Um, but again, but it's also not not wrong like the quest is in fact achieved uh in this uh in this episode um and i just want to say general we'll get into some more details later and stuff but i, w- I wanted to say in general Elana, i loved the way in which you guys were bringing 
bringing Thingol's perspective to a kind of closure in this episode. Like, I, I thought, I really, really loved that. I really loved how that came across. Um, the... I mean, there's an obvious sense. And of course, again, like, <laughs> everyone, all the characters were very aware of this sense, of the irony, right, that... Um, you know, the death of Baron in the hunt for the wolf is like the final, you know, fruition of Thingol's thing, right? Of, of, of what Thingol did, the final consequences of Thingol's actions. Um, but having Thingol himself aware of that and his own repentance for that, his own perception of um, not just that he shouldn't have done that to Baron, and therefore also to Luthien, right? But, you know, the way in which he is clearly perceiving this as, um, uh, you know, the the fulfillment also, or, or the beginning of the fulfillment of Melian's forebodings about how she, you know, he has brought evil upon Doriath um, as a whole. Again, not just for Baron and Luthien themselves, but but upon Doriath entirely. And his own, like, taking responsibility for that. And um, it was it was nice to see, you know, his... Again, not only just kind of nice to see a little bit of redemption arc for Thingol, which... Of course, we'd always been sort of planning and hoping for, you know, at this point in the story. But but even just the way that it um, it felt like it really kind of came around. It's it's it seems to me that one of the really like sort of fascinating and interesting things about the Baron and Luthien story as a whole. Right. Is that is. um you know, like uh, the Return of the Kings film, uh, the Re the Return of the King film, as everybody was complaining about, right, has all these endings, right? You know, and and of course, I and I'm sure many other Tolkien fans had the same reaction, um, which is that it seemed totally fitting. Like we, you know, I mean, I noticed that, but I was like, well, yeah, of course it has five endings. Like it's supposed to have five endings. Like there, there are a whole bunch of different things to end, right? You know, and um, uh, and it was only like people you know, who knew nothing about Tolkien, who were like, it was so weird. It faked me out. I thought the movie was over and then it wasn't. And I'm like, how could you think it was over? Like that part, it ended, but there were other things anyway. Like, so like that, that whole idea of like this sort of nested endings of the story, which we do get in the Lord of the Rings. Um, but in the story of Baron and Luthien, we get a similar kind of thing, right? Where you get like the, you know, the, the escape from Angband and the Eagles come, hooray, the end, sort of happily ever after, but maimed, right? Um, and then you get the, you know, similarly, you know, you get like the rescue of Baron from the tower, right? Oh, hooray, now they're together, happily ever after, except not, right? And then you get the next ending of the, you know, the escape from Angband. And then you get the wedding and the literal happily ever after, right? But then you get the hunt from the wolf and now he's dead. And that in itself, again, feels like not just like a different ending or a different false ending, like each one is kind of tying up different things, right? The way in which their 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 own relationship and, and, and sort of union comes together after the rescue from the tower and they're not gonna be separated and after they still have to sort that out a little bit. But anyway, they're you know they're 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 not separated gonna be separated again after that. You've got the success of the quest for the Silmarillion, as you said, like getting the thing out of you know, cutting it out of Morgoth's crown and getting getting mostly away, kind of with it, is you know Definitely uh, a very significant win, right? 
Um, and especially this gets emphasized in uh, the script that we had for that one um, with the deaths of Dirio and, you know, many of the other prisoners that makes the escape of Baron and Luthien feel even more like a victory, right? You know, they've given their lives so that Baron and Luthien can escape and Baron and Luthien do escape, right? Hooray! You know, the end sort of, right? Um, yeah, that's because there kind of needed to be a cost, right? Yeah. They, I mean, yeah, Baron loses his hand. There is a cost. Yeah. But it definitely needed to feel like they didn't get off scot-free. Somebody had to pay the price mm-hmm. and not just them, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, as I said, it, it, it adds a sense of closure, a sense of accomplishment, you know, it, it, or really emphasize it's not, like there wasn't a sense of accomplishment to them escaping mm-hmm. Angman, but, um, you know, I get more, more of that, right. The closure at the end of the hunt for the wolf with the accomplishment of the quest, right. Um, is even stronger, and it just feels like one of Sam Gamgee's sad-ending stories, right? Where the, the story has come to its end, it has come to its, you know, its fulfillment, and it just happens to have been a sad ending. And there are even ways, of course, in which that feels tragic, but also almost inevitable, right? Almost inevitable in the sense of like, well, Luthien was going to be a widow sooner or later anyway. This was sooner, right? But, um, you know... Uh, the, the, you know, well, that's what Baron's thinking. Yeah. As he's done. I mean, yeah. essentially. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and the way that that gets set up by, you know, the, um, scoffing of Cyros and his companions earlier on in the episode, right. To, to kind of emphasize that, which, um, Cyros, what a useful guy to have around, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like anytime you just want, like, you don't need an evil elf, just an unpleasant elf, right? Like it's. Very handy. He's very handy. I got yeah. some unpleasant friends as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Every once in a while, you need somebody to hold the jerk ball. And yeah. and especially uh, since we we're removing that from Thingol here, uh, it's, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, you could definitely make the case that that Cyros kind of is in the Silmarillion to be that character. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's, that's definitely the role that he played. I mean, somebody's got to get their face smashed and, and, and it turned out to be him. But it's not exactly character assassination to have him say these things. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. It's um, more establishing. <laughs> exactly. It's just set up for um, so that uh, his, you know, the face smashing will come less out of. In fact, it will just be like the more satisfying when it finally happens. Um, If you've actually been wanting to throw something at this guy's head for years already, um, because we introduced Cyrus back in season three. So, I mean, it's uh, uh, he is uh, he has a long standing record. At this point, I think he was he was useful in this episode because there was still a question about whether Baron was going to be accepted in Doriath. Yes, and we were kind of exploring that a bit, and MLD is not so sure mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. the case as well. So um, it was, I think, it was good to have someone we could sort of show that it wasn't a uniform. Oh, well, the king says it's okay, so we say it's okay. Exactly, kind of thing. and the way that the conversation between Cyros and his companions 
um, you know, was clearly sort of balanced against in the setting off the conversation between Mablung and Baron, where Mablung was, you know, expressing his uh, significant acceptance of Baron. Um, that, um, uh, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. Um, if that had been, had, if that had stood completely alone, it would have been a little bit harder to accept, I think, in some ways, right? I mean, it's instead of ask instead of asking our the viewers to imagine that the entire culture of Doriath has just flipped the switch, right? You know, they've been sort of instructed by Thingol essentially to be resistant to humans, and now, oh, it's okay, I've changed my mind, everything's fine, and everyone else is going to immediately change their minds too, or, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, I I um, I did uh, I did like that. Anyway, what I was trying to build up to before was the very ending of the Baron and Luthien story is quite unexpected and in some ways unaccountable, right? I mean, this is kind of the end of the story by rights. Like, this should be the end of the story. This is the end of, um, you know, the, the, the end of the love story. He's dead, right? Like, they're separated. Um, they did live happily ever after, <laughs> For, but Tolkien says while. that explicitly, doesn't he? In the, 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 right. It, that's the end of the Silmaril story. Right, right. But then the uh, there's this, you know, so even the, the idea, it isn't just what happens in the rest of the story, but even that there is a rest of the story is itself a kind of eucatastrophe, is itself a, an unexpected turn. Um, and uh, I think that's... I felt like the the degree of closure um, with the way that the deaths of Hurin and Baron came in together, especially with the way that those, you know, the the the, the character of Hu, of Huan was developed. Did I say Hurin? Huan? Um, if I did, um, sorry. I've been I'm doing the wanderings of Hurin uh, from the War of the Jewels uh, on Wednesday nights. So I'm thinking about Hurin a lot too. Um, anyway. Um, the way that Huan's character was developed over the course of the uh, of the season, right, um, and connected with Baron and Luthien. Um, anyway, I just when you thinking back to everything that we've seen, right, to everything that we've done, to the story as we've told it in these first twelve episodes, it feels done, right? I mean, there there there's um, it feels like a got a sad but satisfying ending, right? And there's obviously still some what happens next. Like, okay, now they have the Silmaril. Um, uh, now what, right? Now what's going to happen with the Fanorians? Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, the, it's not like there, there, there clearly is a need for more story after this, but, but, but this story, you know, seems done in the same way that the Dagor Bragalach is done, right? When after, after Fingolfin's death. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, but it's not so. So it'll be interesting to see sort of the transition in next time, you know, the, um, cause it's not, cause at the same time as it seems like an addition, like the story is over and now there's this extra thing. It's not just a coda, you know, it's not just an epilogue to that story. Well, that was one of the reasons I think that Marie, Marie had suggested and I put in that we don't hear Luthien say, wait for me in this episode. Yes. We're going to hear it in next episode. We're going to hear it in flashback. 
that was so we have the whispering to Baron. That the was whispering. Marisa. I noticed that that yeah. that the wait yeah. was happening off screen. I mean, and that was yeah. uh, that was definitely one of the most striking choices that I was noticing uh, in this episode was the whispering, um, and I was guessing that that was happening. I mean, it certainly had the effect. Not hearing what she said to him certainly had the effect of leaving, you know, as the credits roll in this episode, this sense of sadness but closure right um and i i love that actually um yeah love that uh okay so where are we starting off yeah i haven't started yet that's what that's where we are um so the the a plot is the hunt for the wolf which you know is not just when they like set out to hunt it right but there's the the whole approach of the wolf and figuring by the way did we Maria and Nick I forget did we decide how big Karkaroth is I know we talked about it before I would I think that we have landed on like somewhat larger than a horse I think but smaller right. than like a a like, full like size van or, yeah <laughs> full size <laughs> van yeah exactly like, significantly um, bigger so he's He's bigger than a horse. He's not as big as an elephant, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He is definitely bigger than a bread box, Evan. Yeah, for sure. Quite large. Um, the a general idea is that he needs to be bigger than Drogluin, right? Right. He needs to be bigger than Drogluin and significantly larger than Huan. Right. Um, and Huan we not... have as like very large Irish wolfhound, right? Not Correct. Yeah. But like vaguely within the range of kind of like real the picture dog. behind you, yeah. Corey. Hmm? That like the picture behind you of who on mm. right background is yes. That looks about right. Yes, we where doing. she's riding on his back, but like you know, she looks a little too large to be. She riding looks on just his back. slightly too large. Like if he weren't yeah. so strong and hardy he would have a hard time with her riding the way her knees are pulled up there yeah that's this is the naismith image of course of luthien riding on huan um yep yep um yeah okay so kakaroth larger than a horse basically i was just wanting to make sure i was picturing it correctly yeah um because we definitely want it to look like a an uneven fight yes when the two of them are going at it yes and even just to convey the sense of terror that Tolkien describes, you know, of this, you know, it's Karkaroth's coming is much more than just there's a really big wolf, you know. Um, I mean, this is like, an, uh, you know, this sort of unstoppable force. Um, the thing that differentiates him from Glaurung on the loose, which is what we ended season five on, right, um, okay. was um, no. Four. Four is what I meant to yes. say. Yeah, season yeah, four. The Dago, season five the ends Dago with the Brothers. battle and him coming yeah. out the second time. Season four ends with him coming out the first time. The difference there is that um, Karkaroth is just mindlessly destroying anything in his path, right? It's his – the ferocity of his uh, seeking – and, you know, whereas Glaurung, though, you know uh, – mischievous and frolicsome in his uh, younger days there was nevertheless still intelligent and purposeful in what he did rather than um, simply an arbitrary force of destruction, which is 
what we get from Karkaroth. Um, okay. And, and by the way, seeing him from the point of view of the humans there at the beginning was, um, uh, I thought effective in that way. I really like the way that it, it ended up, um, kind of scaffolding our reactions to Karkaroth, right? Like first we see him chase down animals and then we see him encounter humans who are not totally defenseless, but also not best prepared to defend themselves against something like this. And then we see him against the Elvish Marsh, March wardens. Right. And then we see him against, you know, the all-star team that comes out to hunt him. Right. So, um, at that, seemed like and he a, mows a, down a, he mows down a pack of wolves in the yeah first. that's that's the very first one yeah the yeah yeah, yeah exactly um um yes yes um i really liked um i kind of i also liked the scene where the humans were running mm. and trying to hide from karkaroth um and it, one of the things that i liked about it was the the perceptiveness of that like normally Mm. hiding from a scent-based hunter like a wolf is totally useless, right? I mean, you can get mm. up a tree, perhaps, uh, you know, like the dwarves do in The Hobbit. But, um, you, I mean, like, hunkering down under bushes generally not going to help when something is tracking you by scent, right? Mm. Um, and yet the perception that Karkaroth is not stalking things by scent, right? Yeah. He is just chasing down anything he can see uh, and is way faster than any of you. So don't run, hide, um, which would, you know, perhaps not be the impulse with uh, uh, with something with something like that. So. Well, and hum- humans are not built to do that very well. Um, I mean, yeah. so, so, different people are different, obviously, and there are people who who will freeze Right. Under uh, under that kind of stress. But our inclination, there's a reason why they call it a fight or flight. Fight, fight, fight or flight. Hide is not right? one of the normal parameters there. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. we want to either fight back or run because that's kind of what we're built to do. Yes. Sudden bursts of adrenaline are not good for hiding. So I, I have to say I was drawing a little bit on my recent experience in Southern Africa on safari. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. We were given when encountering yes. with animals. But you have to be <laughs> given those instructions because they yeah. don't come naturally to <laughs> because us. You wouldn't do it automatically, right? <laughs> right. And, yes. um, and then don't run was like number one. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, they, like, I mean, food, food runs. Yeah. <laughs> like, food runs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The general idea is if you have turned your back on a predator, mm. they know you can't see them. Right. <laughs> this right. Was, yes. This is less likely to end well for you. Well, right. I, I also there were two other details about that that scene that I really liked. Is one, Emil Deer willing to sacrifice a compa- a doomed companion, um, which that was harkens- um, that was a that, that was a that, that was a hard call. Like that was a, yeah. That was yeah. 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 Um, and two is the two humans that that do run and realizing that they're toast, they intentionally decide to make the sacrifice play. Right, um, to, to try to draw it off in a different direction, yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and that is consistent with the way that we have portrayed humans interacting with 
the monstrous world in which they find themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's that harkens back to the whole thing when the Holodine came to Brethel. You know when uh, right. when Halas. Uh, uh, wow. Uh, was able to kill um, Tavildo, yeah, specifically with that kind of approach, right? So, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very cool. Um, I love the thing about Baron and Luthien's domestic life, but let's um, okay, we're going to talk about Baron and Luthien next, so let's talk about that. Oh my um, gosh, that's the, I, that's maybe the only scene of its kind thus far in some film. Yeah, the. Uh, the scene where they're talking about living together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, I loved it. I just, I loved the, the, um, and I was so happy when their house was hideously destroyed. Like <laughs> just in that, like, it was so perfect. Like I, it was, it wasn't the event. It was the, it was the, the, perfect fittingness of the thing that I loved. Um, but oh, well, um, I, I mean, they kind of rebuild it in Assyrian. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, we've, um, we've maybe created a new role in film film that if a couple, it has a good relationship, the place where they meet will now be horribly desecrated by a future event. <laughs> if, if the couple has a terribly dark relationship, then the place where they meet will be preserved in perpetuity. Wow, this is so, um, this is a yeah. this is a really specific rule, <laughs> right? Unfortunately, there's like already five examples. That, that, that. <laughs> okay, so so let's so on the one hand we have like also the sort of duplication practically right with Thingol and Melian and and yeah well and that's the thing Thingol and Melian meet in a place that then becomes a dark evil forest yeah right yeah yeah so that's no good and right. then um, we have um, Andreth and Ignor meeting and at Tarn Iloin for their secret right. meetings. Right. And obviously, Which Tarn Iloan later on, right, is the scene of the end of the outlaws. Right. Um, then the um, we haven't obviously figured out how we're going to handle Turn and Finduilus or Turn and Neonor, but anything Turn related probably isn't going to be <laughs> it's great. Not end well, <laughs> and we're going to yeah. destroy the pools of Ivrin at some point. So that's yeah. probably yeah um, related to Gwyndor's relationship with Fenduilus, you know, like we're, yeah. yeah, Like there's things we can, we can do here, but anyway, uh, I think, I think this was, was this Evan or Dylan who came up with that idea? One of them did. It sounds like a Dylan thing. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to remember now who it was, but what are the, I think it was Dylan. Yeah. Which ones? Evan says it's Dylan. Yeah. Which ones, um, uh, get preserved forever, get preserved forever. Well, there's only three spots in Valerian that are going to survive. Uh, so we've got Dorthonian becomes uh, the island, right? And right. so that's um, uh, Gorlim and Islanel. Gorlim, their house. We'll live forever. Right. Um, so right. that's that one. And then uh, Tol Morwen survives. Right. And that's going to be Turn and Neonor, I assume. Right. Right. Um, and then Himring. So 
I guess you just have to ask the question of what is Mytheros' relationship to Fingon, but then I will just leave that alone. Um, it doesn't end well, though. It, it doesn't definitely end well, doesn't right. end well for Fingon. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, well, I thought it was, you know, like what I was trying to work out what the Baron and Lucian post wedding plans for their lives would be because he's not. It's a great I mean, question. He's going to be gone very soon by Elven standards. Um, but then we know that elves obviously go straight from marriage to the time of the children, which had to be immediately on their minds. <laughs> well, especially, <laughs> right, right. We can't exactly do that whole let's wait a couple centuries first thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, it sounds like yeah. elves do actually go immediately from marriage into that. Even it, by Elven standards. That's it, a, it, yeah, that's a it does. It does. Um, but I love the, the – so, I mean, the the concept. And, of course, I feel like I, – well, I always feel in these episodes um, where we're talking about scripts, um, I often feel guilty that we don't do more. I don't want to spend the whole time summarizing, but I also know that many people listening won't necessarily have read the script. And so I don't want to take too much for granted, but – um, so the concept was that Baron um, Baron was assuming that they would have to stay at Menegroth, right? That like, you know, he's now, they've gotten married. He's looking around Menegroth like, okay, so home now. This is, this is home. We're, we're here. Um, and the, you know, the welcome by Mablung is very encouraging, but the resistance from, this is where I felt that the, the resistance from Cyrus was really paying off, right? Because there's, you know, especially I'm thinking back to the, how far we went out of the out of our way in the early episodes of the season to do to show the Luthien effect, right? The like everyone loves Luthien and is touched by Luthien, and whenever Luthien is around, everyone is always, you know. And therefore, like, how do you? What is it like to be Mister Luthien, right? Like to be like, the, you know, like the. What's their reaction going to be like? All of those people who light up as soon as Luthien comes into the room. What's their reaction going to be to this guy? Or, you know, like to the now the mortal ball and chain that she's stuck with, right? I mean, that's weird. Like, and I could easily see that that would be an awkward life for Baron to try to lead. Um, the idea, therefore, of her saying, you know, no, we need to go. We can we can go off on our own. Let's build a a separate house. Um, Let's build a house out in Eldereth where we met. Um, basically, let's go back to that time that we spent alone in the woods together, you know, in the Euro and let's just let's just spend the rest of our lives that way. Um, which, again, like from the perspective of knowing the story, had this really double edged delightfulness to it. Right. On the one hand, mm. it's this beautiful vision of like, like, let's let's go back and just redo the fairy tale of our meeting for the rest of our lives. Like have every day be, you know, like mm. every morning you wake up and say Tanuviel, Tanuviel, right? I mean, like it's, it's like, you know, every afternoon we're dancing in the forest, right? Like, and, I mean, it's, yeah. And it's interesting because it also, it, it also might remind us of the, um, the cottage that has been, that we have created for Gilrein living in Rivendell. Right, you know, it's similarly in a perfectly safe elven realm, right. there is this very human-looking cottage, you know that. Uh, yes. Yeah, people yeah, exactly. are trying to live a human life. <laughs> right. So, right, and Luthien is because she's now visited a human village. 
Yes. He's like, we can bring some of your culture in. Yeah. To- we can yeah. throw some dirt on the floor. <laughs> exactly. We can we can bathe regularly. All kinds of things. You know, to make you yeah. feel more comfortable. Hang no, preserved exactly. meats from the ceiling. <laughs> sure. Whatever you think. Well, not barren, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Be- I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, it, it's so her th- th- that extra step then of her saying like, yeah, you know, let's let's like do the human thing. Um, not I mean, it didn't it didn't come across to me as like sort of condescending, like, you know, let us or like, you know, some kind of inappropriate um you know, like appropriation on Luthien's part, like let us pretend to be primitives like your people. Like it, I mean, it, it, it was it was nice. It was it was this sense of like uh, this is the marriage. Right? We're we're living in fairy, right? Like you know, in, in Doriath inside the girdle of Melian, but we're also going to be you know um, living in a place where he would be comfortable. You know, roughing it out by himself in the countryside, which is where Baron lives, right? Um, anyway, so. So as I said, there was a really double-edged pleasure to the um, the prospect, right, of their living together at this house. Um, the the one was again that idea of the perpetual, uh, the perpetuation of the this image of the perpetuation of the fairy tale, which, by the way, reminds me of um, uh, of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, right? Like the idea of her, you know, him coming back with the water lilies, uh, you know, and, and her, her sitting there amidst the water lilies in their house. Like he first saw her, like there's the kids and the, the, the fact that exactly what they had, what they serve for dinner for the hobbits is word for word, a quotation of the poem describing their wedding feast. Right. It's mm-hmm. like the, the one line, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the only line from the Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem that's imported word for word into the Lord of the Rings Tom Bombadil chapters is that, you know, that uh, we have yellow cream and honeycomb and fresh herbs gathered, right? Like all of that, uh, you know, that that um, it's like two lines describing the feast. And it's the description in the poem of their wedding feast. And it's what they serve the hobbits for dinner, like. Wedding feast every day. We're still, still we're still saying it's like every day they've been on a honeymoon for however long they've been. Right? They're still eating the wedding leftovers all these years later, um, and so again, it it had that sweetness on the one hand of of that sort of um, you know almost impossible vision uh, of peace and happiness and literally happily ever after. Right? It's like the fairy tale come to life. But then at the same time, I also was aware of the fact that what she was describing was not a house in Neldoreth. Like it was the house in Osirian is what I'm thinking of. Like that, that is going to happen, but it's not, I knew it was going to happen like they were envisioning. Right. And yet it's not that it's not going to happen either. It's not that it's just going to lead to tragedy instead. It's just going to be displaced and not only displaced in space, but it's going to be a completely different instead of, and, and, and the way in which the vision that they had was not only so similar to what was actually going, you know, not only was it this picture of what I knew was never going to happen, but was beautiful, a beautiful idea, but it's not only similar to what was actually going to, what is actually going to happen in Osirian, right? But it's also like an inversion of it. If you see what I mean, right? Like she's picturing this um, melding, right? Of human and elf, right? This like perfect half elf, life in the middle of of the forest right and in the end they're going to be like apart from everyone 
right? Instead of bringing everything together, they're going to be both of them together, but separated from both humans and elves. Like that's in Alciria and um, I mean, again, there are green elves around. It's not like they're not, you know, they're cut off from all elfdom as they are cut off from all humanity, we're told. Um, but, um, uh, but still, do, do, do you see what I mean about the, the way in which that seems an inversion? Anyway, I just, I, the similarities and differences well, that I love that. When we see the, uh, when we see them in Osiris and at their house, mm-hmm. that's going to have a, a resonance. I yeah. Hope, yeah. Comes this episode. Yeah. Yeah. But both like both in the sense of a fulfillment, right? Like, Oh, Hey, look, they're getting to live the dream after all. Right. But, but it's not going to be the dream. Like it's not, um, what they get in Osirian is not the happily ever after that they're thinking about here in Doriath. You know, again, it's not exactly the opposite of it, right? It's not, I mean, they are going to be able to live together, and presumably happily in some, you know, but, um, but it's, it's not the picture that they, um, they had, they had imagined. I mean, even the, even their relationship with Menegroth, like they're not going to have to live in Menegroth, but they're not going to be that far away either. Right. I mean, it's, it's, um, there would still be, have been elves when they wanted them. Right. Um, uh, like her family when she wanted it, um, Less so uh, in Osirian, of course. Though it's, the glass it's like, link is fascinating. But Nick, go ahead. It's it's like living like forty minutes from your family. Like they're close enough that they could babysit. You know, like if, the kids. If you you know, if you needed to go out, but they're not going to be over every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Kind of like you know, yeah, going to. Like when I went to college, I went to college a two and a half hour drive from home. Right, it was perfect. Right, you can still get home on weekends to do laundry, no problem. <laughs> Precisely, <laughs> and that happened. But um, <laughs> but yeah, but mom and dad aren't going to just show up either. Um, so yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, then as I said, I loved the destruction. Um, Karkaroth coming in and and destroying everything. Right, the um. And I, I love that because of the way in which this sort of clear indicator of um, this can't happen just beca- because the the quest isn't achieved yet, right? You're still um, the thing that I was the thing that I felt that that conveyed really, really clearly was it's it's been a while now i mean this is the second episode since angband right mm. they escape angband at the end of episode 10 we've had all of episode 11 uh, mostly in brethil but getting to doriath as well and now we've had this peaceful episode in doriath and it really seems like okay like the bad times are over, right? There may be some awkwardness yet to come, and Cyros is still a jerk, and Thingol feels awkward and should, but you know, like it's now gonna become a sitcom instead of a tragedy, right? Um, and yet Karkaroth's appearance you know, is sort of the harbinger of, but the, but again, it's not, it's not just that 
his appearance means the drama of the story isn't over. Their story can't achieve peace, like the kind of peace that they were attempting to establish by building that house. That peace is destroyed. That's why that's why it felt so fitting to me that Karkaroth comes in and wrecks their house um, and kills the laborers. You know, and they come to the place which they had imagined as this place of peace and retreat for them. And there's corpses there, mm. right? Such a visceral, um, shocking, shattering of that dream, right? So much more powerful than simply like, you know... I had briefly thought about retiring, but now I see, like, I still must answer the call. And so I'm going to nobly turn my back on that and move forward. I mean, we get that from Baron still in the, in this episode, but it isn't, it isn't only that, right? We get this, this very clear indicator. No, their, their, their destiny, their doom will not allow that. Right. Um, and yeah, it's not like Rocky coming out of retirement one last time to fight Ivan Drago. You know? Right. Right. No, it's and it's also an important. Time. It's an important point for Singol too, because seeing the corpses, yes. his people, uh, is within yeah, the girdle, was, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean that that's the most bringing it home for him yes. about yes. what's going on. Yes. Um. Yeah. I mean, and, and even even that, even having the sight of the the would be sight of Baron and Luthien's future happy domestic abode be the spot where Thingol's standing there saying, I have failed. I have failed my people. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just, that was also a really powerful overlay, I felt. A really a really cool juxtaposition. Um, yeah. Not to mention, I mean, even... Because there are so many ways in which I felt it so fitting uh, and awesome. That's why I love this. Um, at the beginning and at the end of this story... We have two transgressions, right? Two crossings of the girdle by uninvited people who theoretically should not be able to do it, right? Baron at first and Karkaroth, uh, you know, at the end. And the way that those two crossings of the girdle and that they should happen in basically the same place, right? Um, Just is that was a really perfect and um, but also like low key, right? It was not. it was not a really sort of in-your-face, um, you know, grouping between the two of them. But just, you know, all we had was Luthien saying, yeah, we're going to build a house where we met, you know, i.e. right near that place where you crossed uh, the girdle and ended up here. And um, and then, of course, that's the same place that Karkaroth goes. So, again, just like the, the whole framing of that uh, was just was just gorgeous as well. So it just, um, I, it was, the effect as I was reading the script um, was, it was just, it was, it was one of those perfect effects where I didn't see it coming. Like I didn't, you know, when, when the house was being built, I wasn't like, oh man, I bet Karkaroth's going to wreck that place. Like that did not, I was not thinking, I was thinking all about like, oh, what a beautiful idea of the, like the, I was thinking about the honeymoon and, and, you know, the happily ever after. And I'm like, and I knew it wasn't going to happen. And I was thinking about Assyrian and everything. Um, but then like the, the, the way in which the, you know, the, the framing of that and Karkaroth coming in, uh, it was one of those things that wasn't a surprise, that wasn't, um, I wasn't anticipating it, but when it happened, I was like, yeah, of course, of course, that's, that's, 
that's perfect. That that must have happened. Like that 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 should be happening here. Um, really, really love that. Um, what we've had several moments. This was um, so okay. In the Baron and Luthien story, we've talked about the quest, right, and the significance of the quest and their call and their duty and the way that this breaks in on, you know, them and the the doom that lies upon them and everything. Um, But (laughs) although that's been involved all the way through, we've had all of this, like, working on our relationship stuff happening in this season. We've had so much more of that in this season than we've had anyway. I mean, the the Andreth and Ignor stuff is the closest we've ever come to that really in this. I mean, I think of the the kind the relation we've had we've shown relationships. Like we've shown marriages before. Yeah. Yeah. We 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 got them. But even there, like we never had Galadriel and Celeborn like talking about their relationship. Like we had them getting to know each other and we had, you know, significant choices being made and, and that, but like the, the episode, what was it? Was it episode eight when uh, the one right after the, you know, the leap of Baron episode, the, the, um, you know, the, no, was it nine that we have to work out our relationship uh, issues. Yes, it was nine right before we went to Angband, right? Um, have we ever had an episode like that, right? Which is mostly about like, let's talk about let's talk about our feelings and what we're doing in our relationship. Like that's that's not familiar ground uh, for yeah, some of us. I mean, whole. we had we had Feanor and Nerdinel's relationship, which was basically Nerdinel trying to talk Feanor into not being a jerk about his mother in-law right. situation well the mother yeah. and stepmother situation stepmother whatever situation, it was, she was. Yeah. yeah yeah and but there was a there was certainly a a tempestuous quality to their relationship that uh is is quite different yeah yeah and again i'm not saying here. that we've never had relationship like relationship development or mm. you know mm-hmm. like yeah no we've had lots of good relationships and uh and bad relationships and things but just your, the having, whole focus yes. just on the relationship yeah. instead of there's a relationship happening, but can I draw your attention to this drama over here? Right. Like in the context, like this drama includes a husband and wife and we will see some of their interactions during the, during the drama. Right. Yeah. That's very different from what we've had with Baron and Luthien and having brought them now to being married. Um, and by the way, Ilana, one of the low key things I really admired about this script was like, the I I thought you did a great job of including lots of adorable newly wed Baron and Luthien scenes that were not like horrible. <laughs> I, I I feel like I feel like if I were writing them, like mm-hmm. I like it would have been sm- like intolerable smarm or like it's anyway it's like, it's really hard to write that kind of scene well and not yes it's not um but <laughs> i i mean I, I and i again was drawing a little bit on recalling some of the ways that my husband and i talked to each other when we were newlyweds like getting used yes. to the idea of 
liking each other, husband and wife, and so yes. on. They just yes. competed at each other, and so on. So I included that. But mm. also because there were these earlier episodes, they're not getting to know each other. They've right. been through so much together yes. uh, that that didn't need to be. They don't need to talk about it because right. they've lived it. Yes. Uh, they already know each other really. I mean, I had. Uh, so uh, what I was trying to convey in this episode is that they actually really understand each other really well. They don't have to. I, I, I tried to make sure they were really, they may not be thinking the same thing. So Luthien's idea of the house was new to Baron and so on, but there's no real conflict between them. They, they are on the same page. And the hardest thing I had in this episode was to create pretexts to separate them. Because yeah. there's a couple of scenes where we, I wanted Baron alone without Luthien there to have a conversation with someone else. Yes. And that was difficult because they're doing everything together. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I have to admit the scene when um, when she went off uh, like berry picking without him. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. I was, I was, I, I had this really ominous feeling. I'm like, oh man, something horrible is going to happen <laughs> now that she's gone. No, I, just, I had to set up a conversation with Mablon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one about how Baron's concern that the humans were going to get attacked by Karkaroth, right? Was that? Well, that he one? was, yeah, he was still, oh, it, I mean, Mablung had come with news that they had got back to, his mother had got back to Brathel safely. Okay. That was the, that was, it was just after Galadriel had left. So they're out, they're outside anyway, and Mablon comes up, and then Luthien goes off berry picking, leaving an awkward kind of pairing now of Baron and Mablon, yeah. and so the conversation yeah. emerges from that. Yeah. Um. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but and yeah, then anyway, having no, yeah, like that. Baron and Thingol talking to each other during the hunt for the wolf again, it was really hard to get Luthien off doing something else. So that- right, right, <laughs> right. Um. Yes. Galadriel's role was really interesting as well. One of the things, of course, that was one of the big picture things I was thinking about with Galadriel's involvement there was, um, again, thinking about what I was saying earlier about them going to, um, I almost said Osgiliath, Osirian, um, uh, <laughs> I'm just displacing my Tolkien names tonight. I, you know, I'll give the first couple letters and then give up. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, when they go off to Assyrian, um, there's this sense. I feel that the way that it's presented in the Silmarillion presents it with like, and then they were went off and were never seen again. Like, and we know it's not that they have no contact with anyone. We know they have contact with the green elves and even with the ants. Right. Um, but they're leaving the story of, you know, the Nolor and the Sindar. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're very much retiring from the scene of action entirely. Um, but, Galadriel's there, right? Which makes it look less like a departure, you know, off into the far country, into the wild on their own, into unknown lands and out of the story, right? I mean, it's... Uh, so that that was one kind of interesting dynamic that I thought... I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like, that's where we've left Galadriel so far. Um are we going to do anything else with Goadriel, by the way? Do we have future plans for Goadriel? Is she going to stay in us? How long is she going to stay in Osirian? Are we going to, 
Well, this is a, she said not in Lord of the, the Rings that she crosses the mountains before the fall of Nargothrond. Right. <laughs> Time's running out. <laughs> so yeah. we do need to make future plans for Galadriel, I think yeah. would be the best and way how of putting we're gonna that. Inco- the extent to which right. we're going to incorporate that. Um, yeah. So yeah. the uh, there was a little bit of a concern that we brought her maybe too far in the path towards her Lord of the Rings persona because she was hanging out with Melian and, you know, Celeborn was such a reasonable guy and such a great listener that, um, you know, she, she progressed quite a bit in season four. Right. So she needs to try to take something over pretty soon. And right. probably Osirian would be what she would try to take over. Well, that's but, where she is. So Right. So she yeah. should do that. But obviously it's not going to work out. So we'll have to figure out what's going on and what, her relationship is with Dior, if anything. Right, it's got to be post Baron and Luthien. Yeah, is that? Yeah, so I... like, there's stuff to think through with her character. Now that all her brothers are dead, she has to have a different approach than she did before. Mm. I think the key is somehow finding a way to separate her from Celeborn. Hmm. Well, I Nick. couldn't possibly have any inspiration for that idea from anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I. N- n- but that makes the, sense. I mean, have, she is separated. Having everything. having missed the opportunity to to come up with vengeful Galadriel, which would have suited our purposes perfectly. Um, and it really like given hey, the uh, we, the events at the end of this season, we will it always been, be first to PTSD Galadriel. So that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But it would have been really cool to have like after Sauron flees Beleriand, having Galadriel like chasing him down. Right. Like that would have been, that would have been cool. Um, <laughs> would have been cool. But I, I feel like going that far might be, that might be a little too far. Separating her from Celeborn, I feel a little bit less a certain type of way about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one question would be, and I'm sorry, I, I, fully realize I'm opening up a huge can of post season six worms uh, in asking this question, but um, (laughs) she could, she could have some involvement post departure of Melian and death of Thingol, right? Mm. Could she come with Dior and be like the Melian Mm. figure after Melian's gone? Yeah, she could engage in a little anti-Feanorian kinsling. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just saying, like, we know Doriath post-Thingol is not going to end well, right? So if we want her to be sort of seizing power not radically inappropriately, but not super well, exactly, yeah, doing some puppetry stuff, which is not going to end well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that the second kinsling is going to be her fault, Right, but you know, like she hasn't, a, she she wouldn't be. Well, she might advise against, she she might advise against uh, surrendering the Silver Room. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, someone has clearly to tell, the move. Yeah, yeah. so someone's got to tell Dior not to listen to the letter. Yeah, yeah. Because if he just decides all by himself, 
He's and everyone around this. him is telling him, please hand it over. Then it's him holding on to the Silmaril, right? Which we might decide we want him to do. It depends what we do with his story because, you right. know, he doesn't quite exactly. exist yet. Yeah, we got to um, think about those two things. But but yeah, I would say your story might involve Galadriel. And um, as far as going east, oh, we're going to have to figure yeah. out what sends her in that direction. So the fall of Doriath could do it if we don't care about timelines, which I mean, we can be flexible. Not sure how much we care about the timelines, but um, if we well, want it to only, be earlier, I mean, it it could goodness. be Nernith related just, or something. Can I just say how hard it is for me to get up in arms about Galadriel and Kelborn timelines for crying out loud? I mean, talk <laughs> about your choose your own adventure timeline. I mean, right. Uh, yes. <laughs> just pick one. Actually right. pick all four of them. And <laughs> exactly. I mean, and then even... adhere to none of them. And, and how <laughs> old they are at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even the, even that line, you know, Ilana, that you were quoting, you know, about before the fall of Nargothrond and Gondolin, it's yeah. not exactly a timeline that Tolkien was himself considering <laughs> sacred later That's on. Right. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yep. But yep. in this episode, the main thing is to set up Galadriel and Aragorn, essentially. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was smelling that. That was fun. Um, that was so. Yeah, the whole the, the business with the ring of Barahir was um, um, was. And again, this is one of the wonderful, like, delights of film film. Right to be able to create scenes whose payoff you know is going to come in like 15 seasons, right? Like, uh, awesome. Like, that's just so cool. Um, so yeah, I loved, I loved that stuff. I loved, uh, uh, I loved the, those, those seeds. Anyway. Yeah. Galadriel telling Baron that she'll recognize his descendants by that ring. Yeah. I was like, okay, that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, especially of course, I mean, having the, that's one place where the the Galadriel Arwen frame stuff in this season also works. Kind of, I know that's not the, what's going on in this episode. Mm. Um, we're already with Arwen and Aragorn together by the time we get this, but still, I mean, it's like we. Well, and s- she knows she's not going to see Baron again. Right. I mean, like right. You know. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> unlike, it, it makes me think of Elrond uh, talking to Frodo about Bilbo, right? Unless you return yeah. to visit again very soon, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the same yeah, thing yeah. with Galadriel and Doriath, right? Um, and, and that's what's so weird about the feeling of how the elves are handling this wedding. It's right. like yeah. every elf attending the wedding is like, he's totally going to be dead really soon. And and so Galadriel is telling Luthien, yeah, if you want to come visit me after. Yeah. She doesn't have to specify after what, just, you right. know, after, because there's going to be an after to this. When, yeah. when you're yeah. preparing to spend eternity as a widow. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like you might want to get away for a while because that sounds like it would be real difficult. So <laughs> right. you can come hang out. Yeah. Like, so that, like, congratulations on your wedding. And my condolences. <laughs> right, right. I'm always yeah. here for you. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, terrible, it, isn't it? It was another thing that I really liked about the Cyrus conversation. Like, it's it's important to put that out there explicitly on the table, 
right? Um, and yeah, it, you're a jerk to actually say it out loud, but fortunately, we we have Cyrus for that, so that's good. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I mean it's but it's also it's it's a clear reality. I mean, there's there has got to be a way. Um, the this wedding like has to have been almost a, a like a, a almost a time of mourning for the elves, right? I mean, like th- that's got to be woven all through um, yeah. any sense of joy that they have for Luthien. Well, they're not anticipating losing Luthien out of this, no. so you know, no. They're, they're, Which is, they're, of course, they're the irony. Yeah. For it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and that's why I mean, having children is for Luthien like this is this is what's going to matter right and that's realization that Thingol comes to later as well right right that's what's going to matter yeah uh because there's yeah i mean otherwise it is it's a blink of an eye and that's it right right um yes yeah um oh yeah i'm glad let's not miss uh morwen and rian whom we have seen but only seen as like children on the side basically kind of like we met them briefly but yeah rion's got a scene with baron in uh yeah episode, in the episode. 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 Yeah. yeah but this is the first time we're having scenes from their point of view right. so it is very much a preview for the next season yeah and i i, I appreciated having a chance to kind of think about them as characters and who they're going to end up with as partners. And I mean, obviously we know a lot more about Morwen's story than we know about Rian's, but. uh, uh, Man, you know, I I, I felt that every single line of Morwen's in Doriath was like so painful, so Mm. painfully ironic to read. Yeah. You know, lines like, would you not prefer to remain here with your son? And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Constantly. You know, I didn't, I didn't even think of the irony. <laughs> it's like every single line she has is dripping with, with Turin related irony. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I was, <laughs> I was like, uh, even like when they were talking about like before, oh, I'm, I, I'm trying to find the other lines, like something about like before you depart or anyway, there, there were, there were, there were, I felt like every single time I was feeling like the, the ghost of Turin Turin Bar sort of floating across there. You, um, yeah. You know, I only, I only just now recognized that there's some irony in Hurin's word, not irony. There's something about Hurin's words um, about Morwen after she dies, when he says that she was not conquered. Right. When put into the context of Rion's death. Right. Mm. Right. Which I'm not 100% sure Hurin even knows about. Um, but the, I mean, think about the clear parallel there yeah. right, of Rion dying on the hill of the slain and mm-hmm. Morwen dying at the tombstone of 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 uh, uh, yeah. Torn and Neonor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but in a very in a different very different context. Exactly. You know, exactly. like like Morwen just would not give up mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. it was all over, and she's old. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I agree. No, I, um, 
it was one of the things, Ilana, what you were saying about like first getting to like spend time with them as characters. You know, it's uh, it's really, especially Rian, Morlin to a lesser, much lesser extent, but Rian especially is kind of. Um, I mean, she doesn't. We never really get to know her in the story. Yeah. She's like, we know her from like one detail, like the fact that she went. Uh, laid mm-hmm. herself down on the hill of the slain and died is Rion's con- I mean, okay, like Tuor is also her contribution to the story, but um, but as far as like actions that she performs, right? Apart from she's giving also, birth, that's the she's also that much younger than Morwen, which kind of helped right. here because I mean they both went from you know they're both refugees from the Dagol Bragalach, and that's kind of what I was starting with mm-hmm. that they were at different ages when they had to make that perilous journey. Right. Um, MLD leading them with their fathers left behind, right. and um, and and so I thought, well, these are two different kind of responses to that trauma, and they're also different ages. So I was trying to kind of build that into support for their where they are with their characters now. So Morwen's a lot more serious and a lot less kind of, um, uh, in some ways, less resilient, and right. yet. You know, she's more sort of stoic, but but um, whereas whereas Rian is is you know happy to get involved in the fairy and you know kind of like fantasy wedding sort of stuff and pick flowers and so on. Right. Um, so he kind of recovers more quickly, but also is more quick to spook. Right. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's great. It's 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 fun to be able to because um, I mean, on the one hand, the like smaller contributions to stories that we know they have later on kind of looms large in our imagination as we're thinking about these characters. But um, it's, you know, that can't only define them. I mean, like the fun adventure, right. Is to kind of fill in the character in a way that the thing that we know Rihanna is eventually going to do is going to, is going to make sense. is going to fit within, you know, the character and the, the story arc that she gets. Um, but, um, but not merely be defined, you know, that character arc not to be merely defined by that one incident at the end. I mean, to have that not be all of her character. But um, anyway, I, 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 just, I, I thought that was I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, I thought Emil Deer was very discreet <laughs> in her disapproval of Thingol. <laughs> she could have said much much more and much worse, but she didn't. I think she did last episode, didn't she? Didn't we have hers? She could speak more freely in Brethel, I think, right. and would have also gotten the worst of it out of her system in her right. initial reactions. So she's right. had time to think of her words before this happens. Right. right. Yep. Yep, that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, good. And we talked about the Karkaroth attack there a little bit. So let's talk about the hunt for the wolf more. Um, so the exclusion, that seems like a strong word. Uh, but basically like Baron's non-invitation to the hunt at first was a really interesting sort of move. Um, in, in the book, which at that point is telling it not quite, but almost from Baron's point of view, right? I mean, like what we hear when the news of the wolf comes in, 
we're immediately told that Baron knew that like the quest was not yet achieved, right? So you get the impression within the uh, within the, the the published story that this is Baron's hunt, right? And you know he 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 lets Thingol and <laughs> Belek and Mavlung accompany him, right? Um, but of course it it you know that worked out. That worked itself out very, very differently in the script, and I thought that that was really interesting. The way, I mean, it made a lot of sense the way that that came together. It's, and that element was there. His perception and and insistence was good, but mm. um, I kind of liked this version. The Baron and Luthien story is very much from their points of view, right? And that means that you have people doing things in their story that don't make a lot of sense and don't fit, um, and while we can preserve their viewpoints when we're telling their story, we do have to make the other characters act as themselves. Like just because Lucian sees the world a certain way doesn't mean right. that that perspective works for everyone. Right. So yeah, Thingol is King of Doriath. Um, Beleg is chief huntsman. Like if there's going to be a hunt for a wolf and they're going along, it's their hunt. <laughs> and, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's Thingol's job, after all, to not necessarily for him to go out after every invader personally, but it's his responsibility. He started this whole thing, you know. And I think that one of the things that. But I was also thinking about the last time you had Thingol going out, which was was just before the girdle went up. That was several seasons ago. Yeah, I had that in mind when I was writing this. That that was, you know, he had that that role as right. chief you know, leader, you know, military leader. And right. So yeah. Thing- at that point, I haven't been in that situation since then. Right. Because I've had the good. If, if Fingal <laughs> believes that his people are under threat, he will personally get involved. That's pretty yeah. clear. Um, yeah. He doesn't even get involved in the wars of Northern Beleriand because he doesn't think of those as his problem. He didn't no, start right. this that's big right. fight with Morgoth up there. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, so, and he so, feels safe behind the yeah, girdle. Yeah. You know, he feels that his people are safe. Right. Well, That's and he doesn't. I mean, he explicitly doesn't do anything until Kakaroth crosses the girdle. Right. Right. That's right. Even the, there's. I love that moment too. Again, it, which it didn't get. It didn't get a huge spotlight put on it, but that um, when Baron and Thingol both hear about the wolf um, on the borders, mm-hmm. and Baron's immediate first response is thinking about, you know, his mother and his people and, oh my goodness, this is, mm. and Thingol's immediately like, well, but it didn't cross the girdle, so it's fine. <laughs> like, it's not, yeah. it'll probably wander <laughs> off, whatever, it's not a big deal. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the way in which, you know, Baron is really alarmed and, and Thingol just, you know, it's, it's, it's a non-issue yet. This isn't really news. Um, and doesn't become news until it crosses the, the I, I, that 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 contrast I thought was really interesting. But um, uh, but yeah, anyway, so I I thought yeah the the constitution of the hunting, but this again, this is Thingol doing his job right, getting the 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 best of his people together uh, to hunt the wolf, allowing Baron to come right, um, but um, even that. This sort of, I, I felt it was a really, I really liked the degree of tentativeness there, 
right? Yeah. Like it, he wasn't invited. Like they didn't seek him out. They were like, well, obviously we're going to bring Baron along, right? They also didn't like resist it. Like, oh, Baron, you shouldn't come, right? Um, I think it was Mablung, right? Who was like, you've done enough. It's okay. You yeah. can stay home, right? Uh, which is fine. Like that's a, that's a sensible and kindly thing to say. Um, but again, nobody was like, you know, Stay home, definitely fragile not. human. You know, yeah, like you, yeah. you definitely can't come. Um, but and yet, Thingo like, it, should feel like I really don't want to risk. Yes, your life in particular. Right. Exactly. Like he because risking your life is risking my daughter's life. And well, and and also like. I've repented from the whole sending you to your death thing. I'd really not like to invite you to your death now. I mean, it would be a, at the very least a horrible irony if not yeah. – like, the optics would be really bad if you came along with me on the hunt and died. Uh, and uh, what, am, what on That's earth would bad. I tell your mother now, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I felt, again, I felt like the, the degree of resistance felt – well, and I decided that any conversation that might have happened about Luthien coming along too could happen off screen, that we didn't need to deal with that. I mean, like by the time they're on the hunt, he's clearly okay with Luthien being there as well. Mm. Right, so. right. Yeah, I. that was a really interesting choice too. Uh, that was one of the things that I was interested to see. I know we've talked about this in the past, that it's really hard to imagine Luthien just not coming, just staying home. In yeah. Menegroth uh, at the hunt for the wolf, but then again, like you put Luthien in the middle of things, and how does that change the situation? So, um, the the way that the sort of fight choreography at the end manipulated Luthien sort of out of the picture, uh, so as to enable you know Thingol and Baron to be you know fighting the wolf together, as is described mm-hmm. in the book. Um, that uh, the, I, yeah, she had to be in. I mean, she came along, but there wasn't that much space for her to be effectual in anything. So yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's hard though. I mean, the challenging thing, right, is that like Luthien's never ineffectual, so it's yeah. it's, it's hard to. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, like it, I, I, it's, I can't see how she could actually be integrated into the fight itself without mm-hmm. dominating. I mean, Luthien never loses. So, um, uh, I mean, it's, yeah. Anyway. Except for this time when she loses Baron. Yeah. She tries to heal him and fails. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is kind of predicted by the episode where she's trying to heal him after, um, when he gets shot. Yeah. Yeah. The infection. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um so no, I thought that was um You'd think they would have had the good sense to bring a veterinarian along with them on this trip. <laughs> Are you thinking of Finrod and Ben they yes. are again? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um but um yeah, yeah, no, so I thought that that was um even the way in which she was sort of not involved until she comes in and sees Baron, um, you know, uh, lying there mortally wounded. Um, the, the her sort of acceptance of their doom, you know, in this way, like that. Anyway, I I thought it was um, 
the ending was... Hmm. I don't know if I want to say it necessarily. What, almost like unexpectedly peaceful. Uh especially with the whispering and everything, you know, the, um, we don't get Luthien's extra extravagant grief or something like that. Right. Like this is a, um, but then again, it all does happen pretty fast at the end of the episode too. The only reason we're not getting Luthien's grief here is because it cuts off. Right. So we're, we will start the next episode with, it's going to be a plenty of Luthien grief to come. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Though the the quality of that grief I think is is that's gonna be interesting to do. Yeah. Which um, is why it's a story for the next episode, because we have to get into a lot with what she's going through. That's yeah. more shock at this point than mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Yes. Um Yes. Um And the Ring of Bari here. Uh by the way, one of the um I I just like that I was so struck by the end of the episode the um the the giving of the Silmaril to Baron and mm. Baron giving it to Thingol right mm-hmm. the quest is achieved um and just the the visual image you were describing after a moment, Mablung kneels next to Luthien and gently takes Baron's hand and removes the ring of Barahir. He tries to offer it to Luthien, who does not register the offer. Mablung stands next to Thingol and holds the ring of Barahir. Thingol stands in horror with the light of the Silmaril shining from his hand. That sentence is so awesome. <laughs> like it, like the, him standing in horror uh, with the light of the Silmaril shining from his hand. Like There's like that tableau, right, of... Luthien kneeling next to the corpse of Baron and the corpse of Huan, right? And then Mablung standing there holding the Ring of Bari here and Thingol sitting there holding the Silmaril in his hand, right? Um, the contrast... This is another one of those wonderful things where... Um, I admit that in some ways, I think I had never really pictured that element, right? Like... Thingol standing in grief with the light of the Silmaril radiating, you know, from his hand. Like, the the contrast between the light of the Silmaril, the beauty, uh, you know, uh, of the light of the Silmaril, and the grief and and horror of the scene. Um, you know, sort of the full contrast of that um, had never really kind of visually kind of come home to me, I think. So I really, uh, I really loved that. And again, there was something about the um, adding the ring of Bari here to that, uh, which was which was kind of which was kind of uh, more poignant uh, and more and more fun with these two different symbols. The ring of Bari here being this elvish thing, which is a symbol of the connection between elves and humans, right from uh, from from Finrod's original oath, um, and the way that that has, in its way. Right, reached its fulfillment in uh, Baron and Luthien's own relationship, right? Especially with the way that the giving of the Ring of Bari here became almost wedding ring-ish, right? Not quite, but almost uh, in the way it gets returned. I mean, it's returned right there like, after their wedding. And Anyway, it, it was... Um, uh, and it got me thinking about, you know, what Fingal's going to do with the Silmaril, 
now mm-hmm. that he has it and mm-hmm. uh, the impetus to put it in the Nalglamere and, um, you know, the weight of what that Silmaril re- represents now for him. Yes. Yeah. I was it, thinking about that as well. Yeah, because it's interesting because it's not just the beauty of the Silmaril. And, yeah, I think that this might be kind of an excuse in Thingol's mind, but the value of the Silmaril is so much greater because of what it costs. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, of what his daughter yes. went through for that mm. to arrive back. At this point, it's not the loss of his daughter that's the issue. It's, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Right. And now, I don't 100% believe that, that, that that's really the the major thing driving him i think it's really the desire for this beautiful thing. sure sure yeah but, but that's what he's telling himself at the very least well and it's 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 clearly a big part of the picture because yeah. i mean it's um yeah it's not nothing is awesome sure. yeah. no exactly i mean the summer is awesome but the, when when the fan orians demand it He's going to say no. I mean, yes, his own desire for it factors into that as well. But um, to them, surely the Feanorians, that is, surely there can be there 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 can be no shadow of a justification of his keeping it. Right? What on earth right do you have to the Silmaril Thingol? Right? You know, like you, especially Mister, I want nothing to do with Noldor things. Right? Um, Isn't that explicit in the Silmaril, in the published Silmarillion, that, that yes, Thingol yeah. is thinking about the price? Of yeah, absolutely, the absolutely, thing. yeah, I, and the, yes, the way that this brings, you know, like this means this. It, it now means to him, in a sense, it is much more personal to him, of much yeah. more personal significance, even than it has to the sons of Fanor, frankly, right? Mm. Um, you know, to them, it is like, you know, I mean, yes, they have the oath, I know, but... Um, um, and dad made them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's him, that, that's what that's at one remove. Like, that's not personal. That's, that's, you know. Well, the, but re-swearing the oath while their dad's dying... Is kind of about as personal as Thingol standing there while Baron's dying. I mean, it's okay. Anyway, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think on. you're going to convince I... Marie that yeah. the okay. Feanorians don't right. have a, a better claim on the Simrils <laughs> than Thingol does. I hear that. I, I'm not going to try to make that argument, but um, <laughs> I just it. I, at the very least, I felt that that last scene does a really like powerful job of showing how this is a discussion, right? You know why this is going to make sense um, to Thingol. Not even just as because I do think I would lean Nick more towards saying, um, like, yes, I think his desire for the Silmaril is a is a factor, and yes, to some extent, I think that he's rationalizing. Why to keep the Silmaril? Because, it, but I don't think it's just the Silmaril isn't the, the Ring of Power. People, no, yeah, I, I think people too often confuse the desire for the Silmarils with the desire for the Ring. They're not the same. Well, the um, desire for the Ring masquerades itself at times as a desire for a beautiful thing, yes. which the Ring isn't 
that particularly beautiful. beautiful. No, right. I mean, and even the moments when that gets emphasized, the disjunction there, see, like, yeah, how perfect was its roundness, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. come on, okay, it's a real round ring, right? Yeah, it's very impressive and everything, right? It's, the, the hunt for the wolf, the thing goal, was about protecting his kingdom. It wasn't yeah, right. about getting retrieving the Silmaril was not something that it was, was an even afterthought. I mean, yes. Baron says, the, yeah, this is still part of the quest. But from Thingol's perspective, this is about killing the wolf. Yes. Yeah, because otherwise he would have gone yeah. after the wolf before. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yes. 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 Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as soon so, as it was within spitting distance, you'd be going after it. And, and, yeah, and that's like a, part uh, of Thingol's yeah. repentance, isn't it? That, that right. he no longer... He wants the Silmaril. That's not right. It was yeah, it, it wasn't about that. Before, it was about before. sending Baron. It was about. It wasn't about getting the Silmaril. It was about getting right. Baron off the picture. You know, that right. was that right. was what it was. About. Right. Um, and it's still about that even now, as it turns out, sadly. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, whoa! Hang on, I just did something strange with my mouse here. Okay. Anyway, but just as well, actually. Okay, look at that. Hey, we're pretty much done. Um, other thoughts, uh, other things that you guys wanted to, I'm, I'm, I, th- I think we hit on all of the, the major points that I had been planning to talk about. Um, other things or other things you wanted to, to, to mention or questions you wanted to ask about, um, about the script or about particular choices that you found yourself I, making? I have, I have, a, I have a very important question. Okay. It's not necessarily an episode 12 question. But on his way back to door to Menegroth, should Thingol keep the Simril in a bag or carry it bare in his hand? It's a very important question. This is a very important question. <laughs> Marie, you're muted in case you're trying. <laughs> I think she's deliberately muted. Yeah. Um <laughs> I didn't actually say any of that out loud. I was just mouthing it. (laughs) (laughs) Self-muting. Okay. He's got to hold it. Really? The whole way back to Menegroth in his hand? I think he's got to. Okay. All right. I mean, so first of all, do you, I mean, you've got a, you're holding a Silmarillion. Right, mm-hmm. one of the most precious things in the world. You're just gonna like, you're just gonna put it in a, put in a pouch, right? I'm just gonna be like, yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I've got some, I've got some loose change, and um, you know, like whatever. Oh, and and a snack for later, and a silver oh jumbled in together there, right? Is this exactly what Marie was saying? <laughs> no, it's funny because like, the 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 position was given to me as. Well, you, they didn't bring a bag specifically for this. I was like, yeah, but you, like, you want to protect this thing and keep it safe. You can empty your Cheetos out onto the floor <laughs> and put the Simrils in, <laughs> which Simrils Marie in the then Cheeto really bag. objected yeah. to getting no, Cheeto I... dust on the Simrils. Which... <laughs> exactly. No, that's it. I, I can't see it. Uh, I can't see it. But um, um, okay. but more more to me, it just seems like, especially with, again, thinking about that final moment, right? I mean... He just received the Silmaril from Baron's dying hand, right? With Baron's mm-hmm. dying words. Um, 
and they're going to now like process back to Menegroth, right? With the with Baron's body, um, they're going to bury it there. Are they going to bury it there? Yeah, yeah. Anyways. It's going to take them several days to get back. It's going to be kind of stinky, and yeah, right. the elves don't really have a procedure for preventing for the preservation of right they bodies. Gone, the embalming yeah. route, um, yeah. Yeah, um, I just like I have I I feel a little weird about the idea of of Thingol carrying this thing in his hand the whole way back to Metagroth. I hear that, but it's hard to imagine him doing otherwise under the circumstances. I mean, so is he just going to carry it around in his hand the entire time once he gets back to Metagroth? Because the same argument, like, where is he going no. to put it? He's going to hand it to his wife. That's what he's going to do. And let it be her problem to deal with. Yeah. Well, I, don't, I don't think she'll take it, but I think that would be his impulse. Mm-hmm. Don't attempt me. When he's... Uh, <laughs> with, that, with that gem, I should have beauty too great and terrible. Um, uh, She'd be like, is there a ring attached to this? Or? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I've got a question about this episode. Yeah, good. Yeah. Solve, the, solve the problem. The which is about, bad which is about who, who on's involvement in this. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how that I came didn't talk about who on. You're right. I forgot to talk about oh, no, almost entirely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, You've and left his, out one of the chief characters. Of, uh, which, as you point out, were never, Tolkien never wrote his last words. So. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 I really liked uh, Huan's last words. So uh, let me, let me, let me go back to Huan's last words. Um, uh, yeah, his very last words I especially liked. Thank you that this is the end. This is not the end. So Huan is the one with the spoilers uh, <laughs> that it's not the end of the season. Right? I mean, of course, everybody knows there's one episode left in the season. Um, but that th- that his words are the only indication that there is more to come. I thought awesome. Like just I thought I thought it was really great in the sense that. Um, uh, so on the one hand. There's something kind of sweet about the third, you know, who are, who are, is prophesied, who are, I'm just going to say random age names now. Huan is prophesied to, <laughs> to speak three times, right? They'll come to think of it. I don't think who are does speak three times, does he? <laughs> anyway, never mind. Point <laughs> is, Huan is prophesied to speak three times, giving him, giving like, therefore, like some kind of like, it's, it's like every time he speaks has to be super important, right? There, like there, there has to be something that he's accomplishing. And although I always found the concept of his last words, like, and then like the third time Huan spoke with words to say farewell to Baron and Lucy, like that's kind of like sweet and everything. But I have to admit it, I was always a little disappointed by it, right? I mean, like, obviously you're about to die, you know, you don't, you, you, you still have one last time to speak. You might as well use it, right? I mean, it said this is it. So, uh, but but again, it, it didn't feel like, especially since we weren't told what it was. It was like, so what's what's the what's the effect? What's what it is says game? farewell? That's what we're told. 
says yeah. farewell to both he, he says farewell. Yeah, he says farewell to the both yeah. of them. And again, I'm not saying that's nothing. I'm not saying it doesn't accomplish anything. But um, but it hardly seems like, and three times you shall pray. I mean, like that there should be. So putting, giving him a little bit of a prophecy at the end of the, so that his final words are a prophecy of what's to come, that Huan, um, you know, about to die is the only one um, with the possible exception of Luthien who sees what is coming, right? Um, Thingol, of course, doesn't suspect the, you know, what is coming, what is coming to him, what is coming to Luthien, right? But I was um, also, I was also thinking, you know, what Sam says, this yeah. is the same story. Like the right. end is not even next episode. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so Huan is anticipating that Frodo and Sam will be in the same story still <laughs> later on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fun. Um, so anyway, I, 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 I liked that move to add that element of um, of foretelling to uh, to Huan there at the end. Um, and especially since, again, it's really the only apart from the whispering that we don't hear. Um, it's the only note in that final scene, which really points to the future to come. Because again, all of that work within this episode about the shortness of human lives and, you know, um, in her wedding, like not just in her marriage, but in her wedding ceremony itself, Luthien is, she might as well just put on a black veil at the wedding as far as the rest of the elves are concerned, right? Like you are, you are like, Deliberately turn yourself into a widow. Yeah. Into a widow. It's like, yeah, it's like, you know, you know, I now pronounce you, you know <laughs> Man and widow. Imminent corpse and widow, right? It's kind yeah. of what the elves are all thinking, right? When that's yeah. happening. So um anyway, so that that and so and and of course it comes to pass, right? By the end of this very episode, that comes to pass. And we see the widowhood come upon her, which she always knew was coming, and everybody always knew was coming. Um but nobody sees that that inevitable end of the story is not the end of the story at all, um, except for Huan, right? So um, that's that was definitely my favorite thing about Huan's um, Huan's final words. Um, I loved um, Huan as uh, um, thoughtful, wise, though inarticulate counselor. That was that was sort of fun all the way through, right? When he was, you know. Um, uh, putting in his canine two cents in the questions of what they should and shouldn't do as far as pursuing the wolf and everything, right? Um, uh, you know, his uh, his clearly being on Baron's side when uh, Baron was concerned for the, you know, the, you know everybody outside the girdle and Thingol's like, well, let's just hunker down inside the shelter and we'll be okay. Um, anyway, so th- there, were, there, there were a lot of elements there that I thought were fun. I thought just simply... Um, kind of bringing Huan into this sphere, like the Doriath sphere, like connecting Huan with Beleg and Mablung and Thingol and, and the whole, that whole world um, really uh, was, was kind of, was kind of delightful. Cause we don't, um, we don't really, we, we, we don't ever really see that exactly in, um, in the book. Oh, he just sort of appears, doesn't he? In the story. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, I'm like, I was trying to remember while I was saying that, like, what are we even, what are we even told in the book about how he gets there? Oh, he told, you know, along with Baron went, you know, and then he's listed amongst the he's people. He's just listed among the people that. go to hunt for the wolf, but we don't know how he got there in the first place, right? Right. So 
he comes into who, that part of the story the same way Theron Gwethel does. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, he was apparently just there. But, you know, he says goodbye to them before they go to Angban and says, I'm going to meet what you meet at the gate. Like, he, he says, I'm going to be back in the story. Right, right. And then he's there for the hunt for the wolf. But what did Huan do in the entire interim? So that How was something we had to, to discuss and, and yeah, figure yeah. out where he'd been and what he'd been doing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, because... Uh, Tolkien neglected to inform us of that part of the story. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So no, I thought, and the 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 idea that so like the rumor of the madness of the wolf is spreading across Beleriand, and Huan would have heard that, and that he would pursue, um, you know, and hunt Karkaroth himself, you know, feeling that to be, you know, his duty and his quest in some sense makes perfect sense that he would connect with Beleg like that and, and, you know, then come back. So I, 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 I loved how that all worked. And as I say, it's one of the things that I was, I was feeling, it was one of those things, again, which happens a lot in some film context, when you get something, when you get to fill in a gap that you didn't like, I never really felt it to be missing. Like I never, I never, but when I get it, I'm like, oh man, I was missing this all along. Like again, the idea of Huan meeting Beleg, uh, you know, for instance, like mm. Beleg and Huan having 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 a day out together. I'm like, that's I I needed that in my life. Like that's a thing I I you know that's a connection I wanted to make. And even the way in which he is embraced and admired and accepted by all of the elves of Doriath, right? Um, seemed like a just a really delightful. Um, uh, sort of final chapter for him after you know the ugly breakup with Kel- with Kelgorm, right? That um, I thought that that was um, well. He come. He has a yeah. big reputation preceding him, right? That they all know, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and the way he's kind of taken in as a as a celebrity, despite you know being a not only a Noldor friend but a fanorian friend you know all the way i mean he's been associated with keligorm for you know a long, yeah, long he's time. he's Luthien and baron have told their story by now yeah. so yeah. right it, it's the any friend of luthian is a friend of ours come across the girdle kuan situation right. but it is right. true that he is really the only fanorian who ever got into doriath um yeah. by being invited yeah 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 exactly and that so anyway i just there were there were a, there were a bunch of things about that particular dynamic that I felt. And again, it's filling in a gap that is really necessary to fill in if you're going to go through the story in more detail like we are. But, um, uh, but, 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 but again, more than that, it felt really, it felt really satisfying in that way. Um, I thought that was, I thought that was great, especially the way that we get like the Fanorians and Doriath, like the political, kind of framework of Doriath and um, and the Fanorians through the letter from Kelligorm and all that stuff, right, that we got. It was almost like a kind of resolution to that. Um, not fully. I mean, obviously, things aren't resolved precisely between the Fanorians and Doriath. I'm not suggesting that. But, um, but within this season, right, it seemed almost like a kind of... Um, um, a final note, kind of thing. Yeah, well, a, a, a note of friendship, a note of a note of uh, a, a note of hope. It's not again. It's not a reconciliation between the Feanorians and them, but because of course, that's the point. Huan is no longer 
associated with the Feanorians, right? He has distanced right. himself from the Feanorians. Um, but seeing him uh, connected with uh, the the Elves of Doriath. Anyway, I thought that was I thought that was great fun. And as I say, I loved the prophecy at the end. All right, but it is getting late. Um, next time. We are going to be, so two weeks from tonight, on June 15th, we're going to be talking about the season six finale. We will be doing um, uh, uh, the big episode, the Mandos episode. Um, So I can't wait for the Mandos episode. Um, So we will see. We will see how how we bring things to a conclusion. Uh, here in season six. Um, I'm not, I'm trying to think of all of our season finales where this kind of stacks up in terms of like anticipation and the need for payoff, right? It's pretty high. This one Only the center high. of the Cimmerillion. That's no it. big deal. Only the, yeah, only the big payoff at the end of the most important story. So, um, keep in mind that season two ends with the darkening of Valinor, mm-hmm. and season five ended with the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth. So, comparatively the- easy. Yeah. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> I-, I understand that. Um, Especially but- for me, because, like, it's that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not I'm difficult. just saying there there was probably similarly high expectations for those as well. It's true, though. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I can see this being more difficult. This is more challenging to write, yeah, of course. It is more challenging. And even just conceptually, like the darkening of Valinor is a big deal. Mm-hmm. But we kind of like we know the plot, right? I mean, yeah. the the whole shape and outline of that story is, is, is clear. And there are decisions for us still to make, right. Um, you know, in the darkening of Valinor, like, are we going to actually have Morgoth, uh, you know, pee on Manway's throne, for instance? No, we didn't do that. But anyhow, um, <laughs> it's in Morgoth's ring. Like anyway, okay. <laughs> okay. It doesn't say that he pees on it. Exactly. Um, he, he wrecks the throne. Yes. No, he doesn't wreck it. He okay. defiles it. it. Yeah. He defiles yeah. the throne. Okay. I, so what he does, Never mind. Anyway, never mind. That is, that is not the bodily function. I would, I, I, I have imagined well, from um, that. You know? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so it's not that there weren't choices to make. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> there were choices to be right. made, but um, uh, but yeah, it's it's this is um this is a this is a different situation. Um, yeah, and a real you have to actually question. tell a story. Yeah. yeah, you have to tell a little story, and but also like it's a story it, that could easily be very easily be lacking in drama. Yes. Um, it, it would be all too easy to just tell that story and have it feel inevitable from start to finish. And here's and here's the other real challenge. Uh, among the real challenges. <laughs> uh, so the payoff of the end of the story, like what is the end of the story? 
exactly. Like, where does the story end? With the resurrection? With the moving to Assyrian? And where that ending is, what what is the payoff for the rest of the story? Like, the, the end of the story in the Silmarillion has always felt to me really, like, uncertain, really mm. unclear in its way. Like, the, there is not the same kind of, uh, there, there's not the kind of obvious payoff. But this is, this is, I come back again to Sam saying we're still in the same story, and I think it's because right. there isn't an end. And, and also yes. Legolas saying the line of Luthien will never fail. Will never and, fail, and, yes. But the, it's the line of Luthien that's, that's yes. the, that continues through the whole thing. Yep. Yep, and that's certainly one of the big, one of the big. Th- anyway, there's there's some, but of course, then also thinking about the sort of arc and shape that we've been giving to this season, right? And the whole, um, uh, you know, the whole release from bondage theme that we've been developing all the way through. Where do you come down on that? How do you pay mm. that off? in the context of this final episode, um, especially since I do not think that the Baron and Luthien story, it's tempting to think like the first knee jerk reaction is, well, Baron escapes from death, right? Just as, you know, Luthien has been springing him out of prison all time. Right. And now she's sprung him out of the biggest prison that there is. So Baron has escaped from death. Hooray. That's the release from bondage, right? That's that's not the release from bondage that's happening. If anything, he sprung her from the biggest prison there is. Exactly. So that's the kind of ambiguity at the end of the story, right? Um, And, yeah, paying that off is going to be fun to discuss. So, anyway, looking forward to a brilliant script two (laughs) weeks from tonight. It's gonna be great. Uh, it's I can't wait. I can't wait. It's gonna be. This is gonna be completely epic. Um, I want to say, and then, and yes, and then I want to make sure to get to the reminder there. Um, so afterwards in July, um, we're gonna be looking at the um, artwork contributions. So people who have ideas for costumings, uh, costumes, props, um, with the biggest. Prop. I mean, we're going to need the. Are we going to have the Nauglumir yet? Are we presenting the Nauglumir? Is that a next season, or that is a a future a one? It was created in this season, it was commissioned, but we're oh, the Nauglumir itself. Yes, the, yeah, the it's, it's, itself. It's shown yes. in the season because Finrod okay. has to wear it, and he's oh, right. dead already. Okay, so yeah, so we're yeah. gonna we're gonna need a, a Nauglumir, so which is a big Nauglumir is is one option of something to to yeah. create artwork for. It be, correct, it would be really really neat to see uh, people's ideas about the Nauglumir. Ring of Bear here is also available for people who want to design jewelry. Yeah, we don't Ring have a Bear. final, yeah. final form on We've that. We've talked yeah. about it several times. <laughs> we, yeah, but we keep, we keep not the, getting it right. <laughs> has the uh, Iron Crown been designed yet? There's a, there was at least Seen a sketch it, at so, one point. Bree yeah. is definitely drawn it, if I recall yeah. correctly. Mm-hmm. But that yeah. would be interesting to think about. I mean, I, I mean, this is, in a sense, this is the place where the Iron Crown really matters right mm-hmm. um i mean we get the, the image of it at the end of season two mm-hmm. right but um mm-hmm. uh that's its presentation but this is where it kind of did did we decide that it was one of the 
it, that um, the Simril that he takes out of the crown is one of the ones that would make it asymmetrical rather yes, than the center one. Yes, I think one. we did. Yeah. I think we did. Yeah. We want him to look maximally awkward with yes. his two Simril. He's going to have to yes. totally redesign the Iron Crown. <laughs> Without touching the Simrils. Yeah, without touching the Silverals. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. Morgoth is well past creating anything at this right. point. So. Yep, agreed. He'll have to agreed. wear it at a, at an angle. <laughs> so that... Right, right. He's wearing the Iron Crown at a jaunty angle. Yeah, yes. that's exactly it. <laughs> right, right. Looking kind of like Biggie Smalls or something. Anyway, so, um, okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Too soon? Okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, all right. So the point is, it would be fun to get uh, more artwork contributions. Also, that were, were, were sets as well. Now, the some of the sets were. I mean, most of the like regions we've already pretty well established here. Um, but uh, do it like Luthien's Treehouse, things like Luthien's Treehouse. Yeah, we uh, some con- concepts for that. Um, even the set up for the final battle um, here by the Escalduin would be would be nice sure. to be able to kind of see that a little bit more Mom clearly. wants to design the house that didn't get finished. Yeah. 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 The the um, the house that was not to be. Anyhow, I mean, so... I really want to do that now when all the spare time I don't have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so those are things we're not going to talk about those things next time. But so there's still a little bit of time to to do some to do some sketching and creating and whatever. Um, so we will talk about that stuff in July. All right. Thank you yeah. very much, Alana. You know, so th- creature design for Karkaroth. Also creature available. design for Karkaroth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another thing we definitely will want to see. Um, also, like before and after Karkaroth, right? Um, that would be you know really interesting concepts there. <clears throat> We'd love to have more film film concept art. That would be really cool. Anyway, um, Ilana, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your wonderful work on this script. I really enjoyed well, the script. I've had a fun discussion. It's a really great way to get inside the story in a, in a different way, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and is, is this the second or third script that you've done this season? The second, I did the, the second. You did, six yeah, you did the, the, the song battle one. I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, okay. I wrote the letter from Kellagorm as well. Ah, uh, right, <laughs> right. Yes, the highly impolitic letter from Kellagorm. Yes, yeah. Cool. Um, poor, poor Gilgalad. Um, <laughs> anyway, still remembering the awkward political position we put Gogalad in, and with I, I imagine he spent a fair amount of the uh, of that episode in the not prison cell where Galadriel, um, Ignor, and Finrod were kept when uh, Thingle discovered the kinslaying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he may still the- be there during the we- wedding because I didn't put him in the wedding scene. I thought right. about it. Right. Yeah, and by the way, I, I almost forgot here at the last second. My favorite cameo of the whole script, Dally and the <laughs> Butler. Holy cow, that was so awesome! Yeah, yeah. Somebody comes serving drinks, and he's like, "Thank you, Galleon. and I was like, "Yes!" Oh, the Butler permanent... to the great. Yeah. Oh man, that was fantastic. <laughs> well, he 
Before he rose to butler status. Before, exactly. Uh, he's just a waiter. Oh, he's, now yes. he's going to be the butler for, th- for Thranduil down the road. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was in his, this was in his early, early days, in his long, his early long... career of service. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. So good. Just loved that. Um, yeah, I almost forgot to comment on that. There's so many fun, uh, uh, fun, fun notes like that. Uh, yes, I was, I'm so glad I remembered that before we before we finished. As I was saying goodbye. So anyway, I want to again thank you again. This was so much fun. Uh, I'm so glad that you could join us. Thank you, Nick and Marie. As always, can't wait for episode 13. Going to be great fun. Uh, and we will see everybody next time. So I will say as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.